welcome to uh, the podcast. We've got a guest today with us. We've got Ansi Camel. He's a PhD student uh, in philosophy and religion at Princeton, not the seminary, the university. And his primary interests uh, are in researching uh, metaphysics, epistemology, history, philosophy, historical theology, intellectual history, all that stuff. He's a really smart guy. He's also written on a popular level on different outlets, such as First Things, Ad Fontes, and Mere Orthodoxy. Ansi, so good to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Brian, it's a pleasure to be here, and, and thank you for that very gracious introduction. Well, it's a very impressive uh, list of things you've written. And uh, one thing I want to talk about today uh, is about a piece you wrote for First Things about how basically uh, Catholicism made you Protestant, which is a very provocative title. Great article title. I did not. I didn't choose it. I, you know, I think the First Things editorial staff gets the credit for that. But. There you go. Well, they, they, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make a buck. You gotta, you gotta sell the sell That's the right. papers. But it's a really great article, and we'll link to that in the show notes. You also did a great interview with Alistair Roberts, mutual friend of ours, uh, the the the, the uh, biblical heavyweight over at the Davenant Institute. And uh, that was a fascinating interview that you did with him. And I wanted to touch a little bit on the themes of that. But everyone listening, make sure you check out that conversation because uh, it was really, really insightful. But uh, what's fascinating about that first uh, Things article is you you really struggled with becoming Catholic. That was something that you were kind of on the precipice of like, I think I'm going to do this. And so I'm just curious, what inspired you to write that first Things article? Yeah, I think um, for me, the the inspiration behind the article was mostly that I had an experience of nearly converting to Catholicism. I had the experience of many of my friends in college converting to Catholicism, and I I didn't. And so really what I wanted to do was narrate, um, to tell a story about how someone might you know, find Catholicism attractive for all of the reasons that Catholic apologists and my friends found it attractive and yet not convert. Um, and I sort of wrote it when I was thinking about writing it. Um, I kind of wrote it to myself, you know, three years before sort of that's kind of what, what you know, what would I three years ago have wanted to know this was and I wrote the article when I was, I think, 24. So it's several years ago now. Um, but what would I, when I was, you know, a junior in college or whatever, what would I have wanted to know? Um, what would I have wanted to tell myself? Um, and how can I sort of express this? How can I, you know, justify my decision to myself, explain it to myself, and then explain it also to to my friends and and um, spiritual advisors who, you know, my Catholic spiritual advisors who were um, with whom I was still very close. So it was kind of just a way of, of giving an account of myself. Um, and I think that the title I originally gave it was um, a riff on Newman's Apologia Pro Vita Sua, um, which is, you know, um, uh, a defense of his life. And I, I entitled it something like a defense of my faith or, you know, a, a kind of like um, a discourse attempting to explain myself uh, and explain my my faith. So that's that that was sort of, what um, inspired me to write it and what inspired me to write it in the form it took um, most broadly. Well, John Harry Newman is a huge figure in these Protestant kind of Catholic dialogues. Obviously, he was a high church Anglican who had a very public conversion. 
to Roman right. Catholicism. And that's what spurred on a lot of his, you know, his autobiographical stuff and in his development of some, some doctrines. Can you describe personally, what was that impact that he had on your life as you're reading through his writings? What were some things that resonated with you about what Newman was writing about with regarding his Protestant background? Newman, I think something I only came to appreciate later, um, a couple of years after kind of working through all of this stuff for myself was just how um, modern of a thinker Newman is. Um, and I say that to his credit in, in the sense that he's dealing with all of the various options that are still on the table. Um, he's dealing with kind of rationalist liberal Protestants. He's dealing with low church evangelicalism. He's dealing um, with atheism, uh, various kinds of, of agnosticism, deism, um, Unitarianism. And so Newman was, um, I think one of the reasons I found him so helpful as an interlocutor is that I found himself, or I found him to be in in substantially the the same position as I was in, right? So he he at least in terms of kind of um, socially and culturally, he could speak to me in a way that someone like you know um, oh I don't know um, Kajitan or 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 someone just couldn't quite you know there was there was a kind of gulf there. Um, some of these older Catholic apologists, um, early modern theologians couldn't, and and there was just a kind of gulf there that that um wasn't as easily bridged so so that that was one set of things the other thing that i think i found compelling about newman well maybe two other things one was really his honesty i mean he he was someone who had um um a not insubstantial reputation during his lifetime he became more famous i think posthumously um but he was well known in his lifetime um as an anglican and as someone who was discouraging um conversion to, to Catholicism. I mean, he, the, you know, there are letters and, and, uh, writings of his from prior to his conversion talking about why he, he wouldn't convert and then he converted and then he had to give an account of himself. And so, um, he, he was honest and he had courage. And so, okay. So, so that's, he's modern, he's honest, he has courage. And then I think the third thing for me, um, that was special about Newman in particular was the degree to which he took seriously the limits of reason. Um, and one of the things that I think a lot of, um, you know, Protestant Catholic discourse, at least apologetic Protestant Catholic discourse tends to do is it tends to hyper-rationalize things. So it's, you know, here's a series of arguments. If you can't defeat these arguments, then you should be on my team or you should be on. And, and I think what, what Newman does, and I, I came to think that he was a little bit excessive in this in certain respects, but one of the things that Newman does is he sort of pushes you up against the limits of, of your own capacities over and over and over again. Um, and, and as a 20 year old trying to sort out, you know, <laughs> questions like, you know, <laughs> what does scripture mean? What is the true church? You know, how has God revealed himself? You know, you, I was a kid basically trying to sort out these huge issues. And so being reminded, I think of my own finitude and the limits of my capacities was, um, was, was something that I found, you know, um, compelling. Now you mentioned when you were talking with Alistair about how you grew up in the Midwest in sort of the, in the mega churchy world, 
at least that was kind of the ethos of Protestantism for you. And you felt that left you wanting. And Catholicism presented something perhaps more timeless, something more rooted in tradition. And uh, something that's interesting that you mentioned before is the role of authority mm-hmm. regarding the, the pull of Catholicism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is authority such a big issue for Protestants who think about Catholicism? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of separate that into two questions, okay. um, if you don't mind. The first right. is sort of what I found um, compelling about Catholicism coming out of my kind of megachurch evangelical you know, background. Um, and then more particularly, second, the issue of authority. But on, on the first point, I think, you know, I went to um, college and at college, um, I was very sort of forthright about my um, my commitments, about my faith. Um, and I, but I went to a college that really prized um, debate and kind of rational inquiry and and sort of no holds barred intellectual engagement um and so my my faith was being constantly tested in in i think you know what i would say is the best possible way you know we as as students we are all sort of constantly debating with each other and and trying to you know poke holes in each other's claims and theories about the world and and really just trying to explore and see like okay what you know what's what's real? How do we, how do we, um, what sorts of things can we conclude about the nature of reality? And so that, that was kind of my, my, um, context in college. And, you know, we're talking about all sorts of, um, issues, both contemporary political issues and, and, and kind of, you know, the nature of reality or whatever as college students do. And I, um, fell in with a really sharp, you know, smart group of committed Christians. And then, you know, one by one, my friends in this group start converting and we're hanging out at the, the Catholic student center and we're going to Catholic intellectual, um, events. And what I found, I think in Catholicism, I I think I'd put it this way. Now, what I found wasn't really unique to Catholicism, but it was that Catholicism introduced me to it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if I'd been going to like Eastern Orthodox theology groups or, um, even a certain kind of Anglican theology groups or whatever, I would, I would have found like a lot of the same stuff, but I didn't find it in those places. I found it through the Catholic church. Um, and so what I found was essentially, a um, a, a, um, various ways of approaching the faith that were robust enough to actually support to support me um to to help me to not only justify my faith to others that was a, a concern maybe a lesser concern but but also to kind of um live with a faith that i thought was rich and um serious and true and so the the churches that i grew up in were wonderful places um um, you know, I think we were talking before we started recording, you know, we, I, I actually come from a very similar background to the one it sounds like you're in now. Um, it was wonderful. The, the churches I grew up in were really wonderful places. They taught me to love Jesus. And, um, my parents really taught me, you know, to value the life of the mind and so forth. So, um, I think, um, this was kind of like an expansion of that. It was like, okay, well, I know I need to love Jesus and I know the Bible 
you know, it was true. Some, you know, I wasn't quite sure how, but I knew, you know, it was true. And so then the question is, you know, is that enough to sort of build a life on? And I think in college, it, 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 I started getting exposed to all these other sorts of things. And I realized like, no, you know, this is not, I think I need something a little bit more than, um, those two, those two things, you know, love of Jesus, Bible is true and, or three things, I guess. And then life of the mind, those are great things. They're necessary things. Um, I still believe them, <laughs> um, but, but I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough to sustain me. Um, and so then, so that, that was like, I think one of the reasons I found Catholicism attractive. And then there was the the question of authority, you know, I mean, um, again, I was 20 years old, 22, 20, really 20 to 22, trying to sort through all of this stuff. It gets exhausting. Um, you know, it's like, I, I, at the time I could read a little bit of Greek and English. And so I'm like trying to read some Greek church fathers, some Latin church fathers. I took a class on Aquinas. I took, you know, whatever. And after a while you're like, okay, look, I'm just really outgunned here. These guys are giants. There's no way that I, as a 20 year old, am able, I'm I'm qualified to to make this sort of decision um, about, you know, which church I should belong to. Um, And so then all of a sudden someone like Newman comes along and makes not only compelling arguments for Catholicism, but also compelling arguments about um, the limits of human reason and what, um, you know, Newman regularly calls um, the problem of, of private judgment. At the time, I didn't realize this. Newman's actually, I think, picking up this language from Richard Hooker, um, who's a, a an early Reformed English, like he's 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 sort of before the Church of England. Um, terminology gets confusing, but he's basically an early theologian in the Church of England who who tries to come up with a, a sort of, um, um maybe um, articulation that's reformed, but not, you know, in the same way that Calvin or the the other reformed folks on the continent are going to be reformed. Um, but anyway, so so Newman is picking up on that language um, and making a compelling case for authority. And, and really, I mean, the case, the case, you know, I was revisiting some of Newman's stuff earlier today in preparation for this, just to refresh my memory. And you know, he gives in in various places in his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, and then in in his, I want to get the title of these these discourses right. He gives a series of discourses to um to different people, um to a mixed congregation. I think is is, is what it's called. It's like sermons to a mixed congregation. But really, his his one of his approaches in some of these discourses is to to consistently push people to the limits of, of reason to say, look, there are these grand mysteries. There's the beginning of the universe. There's the eternal existence of God. There's the Trinity there. You know, there are all of these mysteries and, and you, you can sort of understand that there's nothing contrary to reason in these, but you, you certainly can't sort of rationally demonstrate them or even really understand the how of them and and so what Newman basically will argue is like, look, you know, in the face of mystery, um, your reason just has to submit. You can't explain how the universe got here. You know that it did. You can't explain how God is triune, but you know that he is. Um, you can't explain. And, and so, you know, these sorts of and I mean, he, he you know, he I'm, I'm obviously oversimplifying, but I think the point is that um, 
for Newman, you know, the the reality so far outstrips our capacity to grasp it um, that we need um, revelation. Um, and and for him, uh, revelation has to be safeguarded. And so this is where I started departing from Newman. We can talk about this more, maybe if you if you want. I don't want to get into a whole thing now, but but Newman's conception, I think, of revelation, um, and then the kind of the 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 sort of extent of his emphasis on human incapacity started making me a little bit nervous. Um, and so that's actually kind of when I started to 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 pull back and to say, okay, wait a second, there's a lot more here that I need to be doing. Um, and b- before I make a decision like this, um, including reading Protestants, which I hadn't actually done. So, you know, it was a, I was like, ah, I should probably do that before I, before I convert. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I remember in your interviews with, with Alistair, you mentioned something about having to abandon the quest for certainty. Yeah. And in your article, you talk about Newman maybe overstating or at least presenting a case in which it seems like in his in his attempt to safeguard revelation and show the limits of reason, he seems to insinuate a, a kind of posture of skepticism. Um, maybe you talk a little bit about that, what you were trying to angle at when you were talking about certainty and skepticism and, 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 and Newman. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, I, you know, these are huge questions. I, I certainly can't do them justice. Um, I mean, and this is one of the problems when you're critiquing someone like Newman, who 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 really just is a great intellect. I mean, there's no... He's a great intellect. You always have to do so with fear and trembling. You know, it's like, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy to be, you know, yeah. um, to be critiquing Newman. Um, and yet I, and maybe this is kind of the point that I'll get to eventually. I, I can't, but critique Newman if I think he's wrong. I mean, there, there is a sense in which I have an obligation to, to think through these things. Um, so I, I think there are a couple of things for me that made me uncomfortable with Newman so the first, so I, maybe I'll put it this way. I've always thought that if you examine reality closely enough and you press on it hard enough, long enough, um, steadfastly enough, that reality will, will open itself up to you, right? That there's a sense in which, um, not, not totally, not exhaustively, but that, that, that we really are fitted for the world we live in as creatures that God made us for this world. Um, and so we're, we, we have a kind of fittedness, uh, to it. And I think one of the things that started making me nervous, well, I'll say there are two things. One Newman, I think consistently downplays, um, human rational capacities, um, in, in various respects. And he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't he, this is not just in the in the case of like Catholic Protestant polemics. I mean, he he has a a whole sort of very well worked out theory about the nature of assent, including you know religious assent and belief. And he wrote this in his Grammar of Assent. I'm not really qualified to get into the technical details of that, to be honest. It's been it's been years since since I studied it with any seriousness. Um, but one of the things that made me nervous about Newman was his his kind of claims that the Catholic Church, I mean, he says this in in um in his discourse to a mixed congregation number 13, 
he says, I'll just read this because I think I think it's so interesting. Um, oh, my brethren, turn away from the Catholic Catholic Church. And to whom will you go? It is your only chance of peace and assurance in this turbulent changing world. There is nothing between it and skepticism when men exert their reason freely. Private creeds, fancy religions may be showy and imposing to the many in their day and, and so on. So the, the Catholic Church is the only thing between you and utter skepticism. Yeah, and I think Newman has this this strong sense of the fickleness of human reason of, of the of the sense that, and you know, this is a good Augustinian impulse that our wills and our passions, um, and our reason, they're they the faculties are disordered, right, in in fallen creatures, and so our passions rule over us in various respects, and our will rules over us in various respects, and so reason is always directed by passions and the will. And yet what I didn't find in Newman was the sense that reality itself might place constraints on us. And that started making me nervous that, you know, it, the world isn't inert, right? I mean, it, it, you know, Newman sometimes, and, you know, this is, again, Newman scholars, you know, please forgive me for this. But one can get a 20-year-old reading Newman can get the sense that the world is sort of inert, Um kind of spread out in front of us and we sort of act on it. And so our, you know, we can spin fancy theories about it and sort of do what we want with it. Um, and there isn't a sense in Newman that actually reality um, can delimit us, that reality can constrain us, that reality can shape us. At least I didn't get that sense when I was reading him. Um, there wasn't this sense that, that even after the fall, we're fitted for reality somehow. And that, and that, that, there will be, um, I guess now I'm repeating myself, but there will be limits to the to the to the ways in which we can just sort of um, think and act on the basis of what reality is. Um, and so that was that was like one one set of concerns. Newman also transposes this into his doctrine of revelation. Um, and so I was I was revisiting this as well in his Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Let me see if I can find this now. Um, but he he writes this extraordinary line um, where he says, he says, experience proves surely that the Bible does not answer a purpose for which it was never intended. It may be accidentally the means of the conversion of individuals, but a book, after all, cannot make a stand against the wild living intellect of man. And so there, there it's like the Bible is a book. And the intellect, the human intellect is wild and active. And so there you have kind of inert stuff and an active mind that's working on it. And to me, you know, that, that, that just, it was, it was, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but I, that made me very uncomfortable. And it was actually when I started reading Karl Barth, um, where I realized that what was wrong with that is that the Bible, um, well, that the word of God, um, isn't inert. He's active and he can make claims on me and he can uh, reveal himself to me um, and he can delimit me and shape me and form my form me um, in ways that I don't choose. And so it was really the, the way that Newman winds up evacuating the revelation of scripture uh, or the revelation of the word of God, um, including as it's given in scripture, I should say of this kind of normative, um, maybe normative isn't quite the right word, this sort of commanding force, its potency. Um, and, and so I got the sense, well, the Bible's a book, 
and your mind can do sort of crazy things with it. And so you need this other clear living voice of authority to kind of tell you what to do with it. And, and what Bart said to me in this moment was God is that living voice of authority and God will tell you, you know, I mean, and so there was this, there was this kind of sense that like, right. Um, God is the one who's responsible for safeguarding his revelation and for revealing himself and to sort of suggest that, that he can't do this in ways um, without the sort of, you know, apparatus of an infallible living authority, you know, was, was, was a kind of, um, I, I don't want to say impious cause I don't think Newman was impious by any stretch, but I mean, you know, that, that, that there was something wrong there. Um, so that's, those are the two things. And then I'll say, so the first was, um, kind of reason and, and reality. And the second was kind of living mind and inert scripture. And the third thing, um, was Newman's attacks on private judgment. And I, I, I find these attacks very compelling. I mean, and as, as I said, Richard Hooker, the great Anglican divine, um, you know, says the same thing. He says, innumerable men lack the capacity to utter five words in a sensible manner, and yet they stubbornly maintain their own ideas over all the wise, grave, learned judgments that are in the whole world, right? So, you know, he's he's got in the late 16th century Hooker, early early 17th century Hooker's got this critique of, of private judgment. Um, and, and I think that's right. I mean, I think that, that a lot of people make a lot of claims they're not licensed to make. I do this all the time, including unfortunately now about John Henry Newman, you know, I'm not really licensed to make the sorts of claims I'm making necessarily. Um, and yet, um, I can't forfeit private judgment either. Um, I am an individual and I have to make judgments. I wasn't born into Catholicism. And so if I'm going to go to Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or, you know, return to the Coptic Orthodoxy of my ancestors, I have to make judgments. I can't not make judgments. And so Newman's posing of the problem was was sort of like, well, there's this thing called private judgment and people um, who are not qualified uh, and really no one is qualified are just making decisions on the basis of their own opinions and this is anarchic and it's dangerous. And of course, he's right about all of that. Um, on the other hand, I'm an individual thinking to myself, what decision do I make? And I realized that the question isn't whether to exercise private judgment or not. The question is how to responsibly exercise my own judgment. That's the only choice I have. I can't do, do otherwise, right? And so once that kind of becomes the issue... I realized that I didn't think Newman was was the one who would help me, you know, discipline my judgment so as to make, you know, good judgments, if that makes sense. And so that that, that was kind of one of the that was the sort of one of the third thing the uh, how to put it. That was maybe one of the major things uh, that's third in this list of, of things that where I sort of wound up distancing myself from Newman. So I, I hear what you mean with the private judgment. We all have to make private judgments. Even mm -hmm. if you want to choose between Catholicism or Anglicanism or Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever, you have to read history, you have to read scripture, you have to think about it, you have to judge that these reasons are better than others, and that's why right. you join one. But it does seem like, at least for a lot of intellectual Protestants, one of the pulls of Catholicism is you only have to figure out one question. <laughs> is Essentially, is the magisterian infallible or is the pope infallible? And it's almost like if you figure that one out, Everything else, you can have this cognitive rest. You can be like, well, if that's convincing to me, then I can stop my constant weighing of scripture 
and opinions and just fall in line with the church. Protestantism has to make constant decisions and weigh things over and over again, whereas Catholicism really, you only need to make one or two, and then the rest follows from it. I could see for an intellectual why that would give them like this cognitive rest to this kind of, okay, I can, I can move on now. Yeah. I, I, I think, so I think, again, there were, there were multiple sort of things that have shaped my feelings about this. Um, so let me, let me start by saying that, um, the question of infallibility is a very thorny question. Um, and there isn't unanimity on what infallibility consists in within Catholicism. And I don't say that as like a dig, you know, I don't mean to be like, well, gotcha, you guys can't agree on, right. on, you know, what infallibility means. Um, Protestants don't agree on what infallibility means with respect to scripture either. Right. And, right. and so there's a lot, of, I mean, there's a lot of complications about, about these, these sorts of things, but I guess for me, what I realized ultimately is that when I was thinking of converting to Catholicism, I was thinking of converting to a very specific kind of Catholicism. It's the Catholicism of internet apologetics and, um, and kind of, you know, center right, um, doctrinally speaking, Catholicism that's okay with, you know, Novus Ordo Mass, um, but wants to hold a, a you know, kind of 20th century line on, on me, you, know, you know, the relationship between the church and modernity and so forth. And so, you know, it, I, I didn't see it this way at the, at the time, but um, it was conversion to a very particular kind of Catholicism. And this particular kind of Catholicism has very specific answers to all of these questions. But the, those answers aren't uncontested within Catholicism. And they're probably not even majority positions within Catholicism considered globally, right? Um, I had no serious exposure at the time to traditionalist Catholics. I didn't have any exposure to um, liberal Catholics. And there are a lot of liberal Catholics. Um, and so I, I think that that... Um, for this particular kind of Catholicism, maybe you just have to answer the infallibility yes, no question. But what I saw with a lot of my friends who became Catholic is that those who converted to maybe a particular ideology, uh, I, I, I mean, they converted to Catholicism, but to a, a kind of very sort of ideologically, um, well-defined version of Catholicism, you know, there was a lot of disillusionment um, post-conversion. You know, I mean, we were in a bubble at college with a great Catholic ministry and wonderful priests who were hearing confessions and 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 acting as spiritual directors for us. But then when they left, it was like, you know, you go to a parish with a bad bishop or you get a dud priest and then, you know, what do you do? Um, or you get a priest who's, you know, um, very sort of, uh, who's, who's maybe a good priest, but disagrees with your interpretation of all of these sorts of things. And so then all of these questions sort of like pop back up again, right? So that that I think was was one thing where later on I realized that it wasn't really an infallibility yes no, it was like what is infallibility anyway? In whom is it vested? What is the nature? You know, I mean just to give a, a kind of couple of examples, the the Uniate churches of the East, uh right? So most of the work that I do now actually is not in Protestantism at all, I'm working on 
medieval Arabic Christian theology and philosophy. But, but you know, thinking about the Uniate churches of the East, so the Melkites, the Maronites, these are Eastern churches that are in communion with the Bishop of Rome. There are exceptions made for them at Vatican I, um, at least according to some interpretations. I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, exceptions made for them at Vatican I, which is the council that dogmatically defined papal infallibility, for example. Um, you know, a lot of people in the Eastern Union churches, you know, again, I'm not an expert, but from what I've heard, don't hold Vatican I to be truly ecumenical, but they're still in communion with the Bishop of Rome, right? So it, it's it's these sorts of, um, there was this major controversy, I think it was in the 1970s, when I believe it was the Melkite patriarch wanted to reestablish communion with the uh, ecumenical patriarch, so the Greek Orthodox patriarch um, of Constantinople, without the Greek Orthodox patriarch entering back into communion with the Bishop of Rome, right? And so then there was this question of like, okay, can someone who's in communion with Rome be in communion with someone who's not in communion with Rome? And there was, I mean, you know, this huge kind of dust up and and I think people are still sort of very uneasy about the relationship between the Eastern churches and Rome to this day because of that. But so one of the things I think that was really important for me was 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 just realizing, you know, going back to that point that I made about pressing on reality. Reality is just very complicated and it's very unsettling. And learning to be okay with being unsettled by reality, I think was I just needed to adjust myself to that. And once I started seeing that even the reality within Catholicism was unsettling, it was like, okay, that's not going to solve my problems. You know, um, even if I become a Catholic, there are plenty, I think, of, you know, perfectly defensible reasons to convert to Catholicism. Or if you're a Catholic, I think there are plenty of, you know, defensible reasons to stay. Um, um, but, you know, it doesn't solve your your sort of existential dread or uncertainty, right? Um, that's not one of the reasons to convert. That's not one of the reasons to stay. Um, so anyway, that, that that's a kind of long way of long winded way, I think, of, of saying that I just as I sat and observed a little bit more, I started realizing that um, everything was just a little bit less clear than the sort of particular Catholic apologetics roadmap I'd been given, you know, and, and that kind of made me say, okay, if there isn't certainty here, there's also not certainty there, at least not the kind of certainty that they're selling, that these apologists are selling. And so I might as well sit tight for a while and just kind of see how it shakes out. It's fascinating, especially the way you put it, that there is a particular presentation of this tight ideological, it's like traditional but not crazy trad calf kind of thing. It's this right. very polished presentation of this beautiful coherence and history and tradition in sort of the Catholic apologist stream. And it is one of those things where it plays upon the things that we all feel about Protestantism. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, your own family, you know, their warts, you know, how weird they are, all their idiosyncrasies. And then someone comes along and says, Hey, you know, I was once in that and you can find everything you're looking for here. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's just there's just a lot of romanticism. And you're right. I think when I, you know, Newman said to read history is to cease to be Protestant. And I'm like, I think to read history is to become confused <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because right. history is right. very confusing. I mean, you look at the even Christian history. It's not this thing that you can just easily parse out. And right. you know, one of those things where it's like, 
And I think you mentioned this in some of your writings, like read the fathers, you got to read the fathers. And I'm like, all right, I'm reading them. And I'm like, yeah, they say some things that are very not Protestant, but also they're saying stuff that I don't think Catholics would be down with or something like this. I mean, they're, they're, these, yeah. are, these are guys who are like, you know, it, it's not this as if you read, you would finally just find modern Roman Catholicism back then. I know they have their development thesis, but I'm just like, I've come to realize history is very complicated. And I like what you said, where maybe the we're starting with the wrong premise. Maybe we're starting with the wrong starting point. Where we're going, there is this need for this certainty. And only one of these options gives that. And we never question, is that need legitimate? Like, do we need to, as you said, do we need to kind of be okay with the fact that it's actually kind of a mess history? It's not easily discernible, this kind of thread that pulls it all together. But I find that very compelling when somebody can kind of bring that. And I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying, what do you think about romanticism, you know, with regard to what Catholicism presents to Christians to 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 Protestants uh, Catholicism to, to Protestants. You think there's a level of romanticism there, and if so, what what is that like? Yeah, I'm I'm sh- I'm sure there is, you know. Um, but part of it too is just that there's <laughs> there's just a lot of romanticism in the world, right? I mean, I you know I don't think that this is something that's unique um, by any means to to Catholics advocating for their position. Um, I think it you know. Um, Probably if you read some of my stuff from right around the time this first things article came out, if you were following me on Twitter at the time, you know, you would have seen a lot of romanticism about Protestantism on my Twitter feed, right? You know, and so it's a, and and I, I but I think, you know, um, I really, frankly, one of the things that changed me pretty dramatically that snapped me out of romanticism was, was having kids, you know, it it was um, because immediately your concerns shift, they become much more practical, you know, at least on a, a day-to-day basis with, with church and so forth. And, you know, kids, the, the kind of um, testing that your kids put you through, particularly when they're very young, the sorts of, you know, they, they, they sort of expose your moral deficiencies unlike anything else you could, you could possibly your moral deficiencies your intellectual deficiencies your your sort of um your creatureliness your finitude and so maybe this is where you know i do agree with newman um um th- there really is a, a a um your ability uh, well i agree and disagree i for me my ability to sort of believe um or 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 to kind of um believe in romantic versions of, of articulations of ecclesial belonging, um, was kind of exploded by the very unromantic, uh, having of children. Um, in part, because I think one of the things that I had found very attractive about Catholicism was, um, at the time was the theology of the body and the kind of like you know, teachings about marriage and family and so forth. That was very popular in the circles I was in. And, you know, there's still a lot of great stuff in that. I don't by any means mean to say that, that I, you know, that my position has, you know, whatever. The point is there's lots of great stuff there, but it was not like, you know, as romantic as I thought it was when I was in college and I was like, I'm going to get married and have kids and it's going to be this beautiful, like icon of divine love and, you know, whatever. And it was like, I mean, it is, um, but it turns out that icons of divine love you know, are really hard a lot of the time. <laughs> and and so I think that was one of those things where that was another piece of the puzzle that kind of, um, that, that just didn't quite fit right. 
and then um and 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 so you know I, I life beats you up and as you get beat up by life the blinders come off a little bit i think um and so anyway that, that that's kind of maybe just a way of talking about my own sort of falling out of love with certain ideas of um the way that things would be um you know, as I grew up, but you know, that I, I, I do think that there's no sort of, um, solution for romanticism, like, like reality. And, you know, for a lot of my friends, they're kind of who, who converted and are still faithful Christians. And, you know, um, some of my best friends to this day, we keep in touch, you know, it, it's, um, they lost the romanticism and kept the Catholicism. And I think that's, you know, that's been great for them. Um, and I'm very happy that they were able to make that work instead of just kind of you know, ping-ponging back and forth or becoming cynical, right? Um, they still love Jesus and they still love the church and and they're raising, you know, families and so forth. And that's, I think that's wonderful. What is actually at stake though? If somebody converts to Catholicism, you know, what's at stake with that? Even with your friends, because there are massive differences. So how do we process through what's actually at stake between Protestants and Catholics? Yeah, no, thanks. That's That's a very... Helpful question. I mean, um, you're right. It's very difficult to to see what's at stake in part because, you know, there isn't like one Protestantism and there isn't one Catholicism. So what's at stake for different Catholics or Protestants is, you know, changes depending on on um, on uh, who you're talking to. Right. So and this this is um, but 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 I think there there are a couple of ways of thinking about that. I mean, one way of thinking about that is to see that as a problem. Um, and I think I tended to think, you know, when I wrote that first things piece and when I was, you know, talking to Alistair about these things, I tended to think that that was a problem, that that things had become fuzzy. I think on the other hand, I actually see that as a sign of real ecumenical progress over time where, um, yes, it's very difficult. Like technically Catholics are still committed to the position that I've never had a real Eucharist. On the other hand, they say that I belong to an ecclesial body. It's not a church, but it's like a quasi church. And they say that the Holy Spirit is active there and that by virtue of my baptism, I'm engrafted into Christ and that, you know, I'm living a faithful life. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, if they if they want to, you know, be very technical about whether or not I've ever had a Eucharist, I mean, we can have that debate. On the other hand, if they're already granting that I'm engrafted into Christ and the Holy Spirit is ministering to me, even in Protestant worship services, you know, I, I you know, I guess we can split the hairs. I think I've received a real Eucharist, but it doesn't really bother me that that they don't. On the other hand, the fact that they're willing to grant that there is any kind of legitimacy to Protestant churches, um, that there's any kind of legitimacy to Protestant worship, that there's any kind of legitimacy to Protestant views of justification, to Protestant views of scripture. I mean, read Vatican II's Dei Verbum. It's like, that is, you know, Luther would have been jumping for joy if, if they had written Dei Verbum when, when, when he was, a, um, you know, prior to his excommunication. Like, these are all signs of, of meaningful, in my view, doctrinal reform and it's precisely, I think, the kind of closeness that we have that makes some of these issues, you know, very difficult to adjudicate. This is kind of the, the the fuzziness where when you want to dunk on the Protestants, you're all divided. You don't have unified dogma. Everyone believes what they want. You're so diverse. It's bad. 
That's the selling point. And then you go, well, if you're all united, here are some of the doctrines. These are the logical implications. They go, no, there's diversity. Not everyone believes that. You know, mm-hmm. so it seems like it's a little bit of a bait and switch where, I, yeah, you know Sorry. what I mean? Like if it's, you know, at the end of the day, though, is that an official teaching that Protestants are not in the apostolic succession of, of you know, the apostles? They're not legitimately ordained. I mean, once it gets down to the brass tacks, because that's the selling point of Catholicism, that they have these, these, it's like, this is what it is. You know, even if people... They have this institutional coherence, even if the people, you know, are fuzzy on it on the ground level. And that to me is always I'm like, well, which one is it? Because because the way you're trying to sell it to Protestants is don't you want this cohesion? Don't you want these definitive statements? And then when you're asked about those definitive statements, you say there's a plurality of views and people don't always feel this way. And we've changed and developed, you know, it's like on the one hand, we're unchanging from the beginning. On the other hand, we've developed to become more open. <laughs> it just it feels a little bit like it doesn't feel sometimes it doesn't feel honest well and i think i think what you're getting at i mean at least you know all i i won't say what you're getting at i how i'm taking you know what you're getting yeah. at what i would say i think in response to that is if you have a very particular sort of um a a very particular version that of of Catholicism or of Protestantism, but if you have a very particular version, um, you know, we can just take this sort of center-right kind of conservative, not traditionalist, okay with Vatican II, but, but, you know, trying to kind of synthesize the church and modernity, the kind of Catholic apologist that I was, you know, engaging with, you know, if, if that's your version of Catholicism, then it does feel like a bait and switch, but it's because their sort of version of of the faith just isn't adequate to reality. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I mean, this one's kind of fun because it's so shocking. But you know, I mean, the uh, on the on the issue of apostolic succession, Rome very famously says um, at a certain point, I think it's in the 17th century, Anglicans don't have valid orders. Um, um, therefore, they've lost the succession. Therefore, none of their priests are real priests. Therefore, none of their Eucharists are valid, and and, and so on and so forth. And and Rome has a lot of very sort of technical reasons why it thinks that this is true. I think they're pretty weak. Um, but you know, for example, in fifth in the fifth century, it was common. The fourth fifth century, it was common for the patriarch of Alexandria. This is so. This is prior to any any schisms. Um, so prior to the Council of Chalcedon. The Patriarch of Alexandria, who has one of the top sees in, in the ancient world, is ordained when, um, well, there are two ways of ordaining him. One, the priests can ordain him, Patriarch, which is not permissible uh, given the Roman Catholic view of orders. Bishops have to ordain bishops, right? But priests can ordain the, the Archbishop of Alexandria. The other, the other person who can ordain the Archbishop of Alexandria is the deceased former Archbishop of Alexandria. So they will actually place the hand of the dead former Archbishop of Alexandria on the head of the person who's succeeding him. And that's the ordination, right? Now, you know, they don't do that today, obviously. I don't think any other church that I know of did this. Um, But, you know, Rome counts Coptic Orthodox orders as legitimate orders. Um, And it, and it, you know, there are technical debates about 
the degree of continuity between the contemporary Coptic Orthodox Church and the Church of Alexandria, I think there's a lot of in the in the fifth century. I think there's a lot of continuity. Doesn't matter. Um, but you know, they they count those as valid orders. Now, by you know, Roman Catholic lights, those should not be valid orders, right? I mean, if you have sort of the 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 guy who's responsible for consecrating, you know, all of the bishops, um, because he does actually the the Patriarch of Alexandria consecrated all the bishops at the time, and then all of their you know, priests and so forth are being ordained by a guy who who is dead. I mean, that's just not possible, right? And so, th- that's where you get these sorts of um, realities just a little bit too messy, um, I think. And so, I, I tend to see it not as like a bait and switch, um, but as you know, just just part of you know what it is to be to be living in a, in a world that's um, that's much more complicated than we like to think. Now, the one thing I will say. And this is something that a, a, a my spiritual director, who who my late spiritual director, Father Paul Mankowski, um, who was a, a Jesuit priest and a, just you know one of the greatest men I've ever known. Um, but after he read my first things piece, he emailed me and said, he said, you know, it's great that you're like thinking through all this doctrine stuff because he'd been thinking through it all with me. He was there with me every step of the way. Um, but what about what about um, common worship. What does that count for in your, in your account? And, and, you know, it's something that I I think at the time I was kind of dismissive, not, not in the sense that I, I just sort of thought, well, Father Paul, what, what do you know? I mean, I, I, I revered him and still do. And so I took it seriously, but it's something I've been thinking about over the last five years. And I was talking with a friend of mine recently who made a point about Catholic factions. And so Fordham university, and there are a lot of good people at Fordham, so none of this is is to impugn any particular Catholic camp. But, you know, Fordham University tends to represent the kind of left wing of Catholicism in the United States. And like take First Things, for example. First Things represents the kind of center right. They're not traditionalists, but they're, you know, they don't like the Fordham camp and the Fordham camp, I think, tends not to like them. And a, and a friend of mine remarked to me recently that, you know, when push comes to shove, First Things is having Carl Truman write for them and speak at their, you know, their public facing events. And they're not having Fordham priests speak at their public events. And, and I think he meant this as a, as a way of talking about Catholicism's kind of incoherence, that it sort of splits along the same lines as everybody else. And I thought to myself, that's true. On the other hand, the people at first things when they go to mass are going to be sharing the Eucharist with the Fordham Catholics. Right. Even if they're having Protestants write for them. And and so to my to to you know to Father Paul's point, I don't think that's exactly what he was getting at, but the unity of worship really is important. Um and um formal unity of worship in in the sense of like liturgical forms really is important. Um and and this is something I'm still sort of working through, you know, myself, but um, but that is something where I think there's more um coherence. Um, in Catholicism, the right, I mean, whether it's Novus Ordo or, or, um, you know, ad, ad populum or, um, or, um, facing the East, um, ad orientum, you know, there is more coherence, you know, you walk into a Catholic parish anywhere in the United States. Yeah. You might get a couple of oddballs, you know, with like electric guitars or whatever, if you go on youth mass Sunday or whatever, but, you know, I mean, for the most part, you're going to be worshiping in common with other people in the church 
in a way that's reasonably similar to what's happening in other parts of the country um, and to in other parts of of the world that are Catholic. Um, and so the, and that is something that I think is serious and needs to be reckoned with. Um, and last thing I'll say, because I've been talking for a long time, but but I do think that what this shows. The church historically has been a very big tent. And there have been people who believed all sorts of crazy things. And most of them lived and died within, you know, the bosom of mother church, right? I mean, some of them get condemned as heretics and are and are excommunicated, of course, that, you know, there's always that. But but there are a lot of people writing a lot of crazy stuff and saying a lot of crazy stuff and doing a lot of crazy stuff um, who, you know, live and die as, as faithful children of the church. Um, and yet, um, have, you know, certain sort of fundamental things in common. Um, although now there's much more liturgical uniformity than there ever was historically. So, so maybe even on that point, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit too, yeah, you know, glibly, but. Well, maybe as we kind of conclude, like, so, I mean, you, you bring up a lot of good points about uniformity of worship, but I mean, you didn't become Catholic. And you said that Catholicism helped you actually think like a Protestant. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So, yeah, I by Catholicism making me Protestant, what I mean, or helped me think like a Protestant, what I mean is that the 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 kind of Protestantism that I wound up finding in the Reformation and the generation, you know, the, kind of the first two generations of the Reformation and then a couple of people after. Um, so when I was thinking about converting to Catholicism, I was thinking about things like justification. What is it? Um, how does it happen? I was thinking about the sacraments. What are they? How do they work? I was thinking about the nature of scripture. What is it? How do I know what the canon is? Do I need to know what the canon is? Um, um, ecclesial authority. How does it operate? What's its character? Um uh, liturgy. What what should we be doing in worship? These are the kinds of questions that Catholicism taught me to ask. Because you know, as a growing up low church non denominational evangelical, you mean that like it's not obvious that it's permissible to like sing three songs with a praise band and an electric guitar solo and smoke machines, and then sit down and listen to someone talk for forty five minutes, and then go home and call it a day like that. Like so, it, it, um. Not to say that that's bad, um, but it's just to say it, it, it had never even entered my mind that that could be questioned, right? Um, um, you mean that like the vast majority of Protestants throughout history have not only been okay with baptizing infants, but also like believe that it was a, a means of grace? Like, you know, how to. And so what I wound up finding is that once Catholicism taught me what to look for, I was able to go back and read the reformers. And start realizing that, oh, the questions that they're asking, they're not universal questions in the sense that, you know, the 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 churches of the East, broadly speaking, don't really get exercised about justification the same way Protestants do and, and, and their Catholic counter-reformation uh, opponents did. So they're not universal questions in that sense, but they're, they're questions that are animating a substantial part of the church at a particular moment in time. Um, and so in, and, and that had animated the Western church for a very long time. And so 
by by reframing my mind around those questions, Catholicism actually taught me how to understand the significance of, for example, what Luther's doing, right? Um, so it was one thing to like be a an evangelical, non-denominational evangelical, and just kind of read Luther on faith, you know, um, from that perspective. It was another thing to like think really long and hard about what Catholicism said was important. And then go back and read the reformers and find that the reformers thought the same things were important. It's 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 not that they didn't think they were important. They just had different uh, articulations of them that wound up being, you know, reasonably uh, well grounded also in the in the um, Augustinian uh, tradition as it develops in the Latin West, just like Catholicism's answers that it develops in the 16th century are similarly reasonably not entirely reasonably well grounded in that tradition right and so it was it was i think that's what i mean by catholicism kind of teaching me how to become a protestant it was that i actually couldn't understand what the reformers were doing until i unlearned um some of the sort of kind of evangelical assumptions i had um about things like worship or the nature of the church over time or or even justification um and learn to start asking questions a little bit differently and then i was able to kind of read them with fresh eyes so to speak and then realize oh there's a lot more in common here than than i realized who, who were some of the reformers that really helped you on that journey you mentioned luther a little bit but who were some other reformers that you kind of read in a new light after studying catholicism yeah, Luther was was huge for me. Um I I love Luther. He's just, you know, there are all sorts of problems with him. Um uh but <laughs> he's just a really fun guy to read. So Luther was really important for me. Um and and one of the things I liked about him was how like um medieval he he is but also how humanistic he is. So he has the kind of old medieval and also new humanism and then how kind of um small c catholic he still is he's you know he's he's a very sort of um medieval catholic thinker and that's just a an exciting thing to be around um but he's also like a firebrand and he's not super precise and so for the precision and the you know thinking about how to integrate the tradition a little bit more um in a in a little bit more of a sophisticated manner, I needed something else. And so I read Richard Hooker, the um Anglican theologian I mentioned. Um, and Hooker, one of the things that I like about him is that if Luther is sort of medieval in his personality, in his assumptions, in his affect, Hooker is kind of medieval in his um conversation partners, in his categories, his mode of thinking. It's still very much he's drawing on this, you know, medieval kind of the Aristotelian synthesis that develops out of, you know, the scholastics reading the Arabic philosophers and so forth. Um, he's still kind of living in that world. So there's a lot of distinctions. There's a lot of care about um, tradition, but he's also, you know, a broadly speaking reformed um, Anglican thinker, but he's not reformed in the way that Calvin was reformed. And so I think seeing Hooker, and seeing that you could be reformed in these different ways, that you could be a Protestant in these different ways was, was very helpful to me. So Luther, Hooker, um, I did read Calvin. Calvin grew on me over time. I didn't start off liking Calvin very much. Um, and the stuff that I like in Calvin, even today, I still um, 
like it when he's more in his Lutheran mode. Um, and then the other person, honestly, was Karl Barth, um, who I, you know, no one really likes Barth right now. If you're conservative, you have your reasons for not liking him. And if you're progressive, you have your reasons for not liking him, you know. Um, but honestly, reading Barth was, you know, just the, Barth's sort of, um, um, how to put it, his his kind of maniacal, it makes it sound bad, but his sort of um, 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 kind of relentless commitment to the word of God as a living and active word um, in the presence of whom I'm sort of overmastered without being um, without being sort of coerced. I mean, it was it was just this, this sort of sense that like God can speak to me like that's possible that God's word, the word that created the heavens and the earth speaks to me. And that word is not inert. It's not something I can just do whatever I want with. That's a word that, that, that will delimit me and shape me and form me and master me. And, but not in a, in a, in a way that's coercive or, 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 um, that violates me. It's, and so it was, it was a kind of, um, a reintroduction, if you will, to the kind of power of, of God's word. And, and, um, and there's this great Bart quote, um, where he talks about, uh, this is in his commentary, um, on Paul's epistle to the Romans, Carl Bart writes, the gospel does not require representatives with a sense of responsibility for it is as responsible for those who proclaim it as it is for those to whom it is proclaimed. The gospel of the resurrection is the action, the supreme miracle by which God, the unknown God dwelling in unapproachable light, makes himself known. And so there you, you can see the agency for Bart. It's it's God's agency. And that, I think, was very helpful for me coming coming from, from Newman. Um, so those are the kind of the four people that I really learned um, to think with um, at that time. And to, I mean, to be honest, I haven't revisited a lot of their writings in, in years because I'm, my studies, my research has taken me to very different fields, but, um, but I think they've left a pretty, pretty lasting mark on me. What do you think about the future of ecumenical talks? Do you think there could actually be in our lifetime, some kind of reunification? You know, I, I reunification involves you know delimited parties that are reunifying and so the question of course for protestants is like what exactly is there for catholics to reunite with because we're all sort of institutionally diffuse that said i mean i think at the doctrinal level um so for catholics and protestants at the doctrinal level i think there's been real progress i mean multiple times in the last three years in various homilies Pope Francis has said that Luther was right about the doctrine of justification, which I mean, is just extraordinary. You know, it's. But how can he say that? I mean, I just. With but this, this, this is the thing where with, I mean, like where people become more Catholic than the Pope, you know, right. I mean, this is the yeah. sort of like, get, I mean, no, I, I, I get it right. For the question, him, I guess, you know, the question. But for me, what I'm what I'm less concerned with is how people can make the can sort of um, square the circle or whatever. Um, I'm more concerned with what they'll let you say and believe. Right. And so, you know, um, um, so for me, what's, what I think is probably fundamental for reunification uh, and the future of ecumenical dialogues is not like 
whether the people who are traditionalists can come up with an account that can somehow, you know, make it okay for Pope Francis to say that. That's not really my concern. My concern as a Protestant is um, what what um, what will you allow me to to think and be in communion with you? What will you allow me to say and be in communion right. with you? And if the Pope can say that Luther's right about justification, that means that I could say that Luther's right about justification, right? And so there's there's this sense in which I think what's necessary for reunion isn't necessarily a kind of um, a, a kind of master theory that kind of fits all the pieces together. I don't know that we'll ever get that. Um, in part because historically the Catholic Church just made some indefensible claims. You know, I mean, it just that that, that are sort of historically not really defensible. Um, you know, Trent on auricular confession. It's just, in fact, not true that the church has always had private one-on-one confessions and had the same. Yeah, it's just not true. Um, so, so, but, but what's, um, so I guess. From my view, Catholics already have this problem with Vatican II, right? Where you know, they, it, Vatican II holds out religious freedom as like a fundamental human right. Pope Leo's syllabus of errors says that it's like a heresy, and you've got that within the span of you know a century, right? How do you square that circle? I don't know. In in one sense, it's not my problem because I'm not Catholic, but all I need is for them to say you can think these things, and you're welcome here. And it's like, okay, if you don't have a theory for how I can say them. That doesn't bother me as long as you'll let me say them and think them. Yeah. But the, the one other thing is I think Protestants tend to underestimate the extraordinary state of ecumenical progress between Catholicism and um, the Orthodox churches. Um, so just for a couple of examples, in the in 1989 and 1990, the Oriental Orthodox churches who um, who um, split after the Council of Chalcedon, um, basically settle their Christological disagreements with the Eastern Orthodox churches. They say, we completely agree on Christology. Um, we agree on a whole host of other things. We we hold the same faith. So now the only barrier to reunion, they say, is, is the fact that they just have these different churches with different institutional structures. That's huge. Pope Francis recently, like two months ago, had the Patriarch of Alexandria, the Coptic Orthodox Patriarch of Alexandria, celebrate a divine liturgy in St. Peter's at the main altar. I mean, this is huge, right? So, so that now you have liturgies that are being celebrated on, you know, Roman Catholic altars by people who 200 years ago were considered, you know, schismatics and heretics who are, who are going to hell. Pope Francis recently, this is the last thing I'll say on this, released a letter um, to the uh, Eastern Orthodox patriarchs saying that if reunion is ever reestablished, Rome will, the the nature of the Bishop of Rome's primacy over the churches of the East will have to be totally different in kind than the nature of his primacy historically exercised over the West. You mean he would basically be a first among equals? He didn't say it that way, but, but I think he's, he's, just, I mean, but, but so these are the sorts of things where I think like, when you see this sort of thing happening, that would have been unthinkable even, you know, 60 yeah. years ago, uh, when ecumenical conversations were were kind of much more prominent in the public mind. I just, I, I think, well, if, if that can change, if the Pope can say that Luther's right about justification and say that maybe he's okay with the first among equals type settlement with the churches of the East. I mean, you know, as, 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 as we say, um, Allahu Alam, only God knows, right? I mean, I don't know. Allahu Alam. I don't know. 
but God knows. But anything have, is possible. Right? I don't know if they would let Protestants say that. I don't think the Pope is a vicar of Christ. I mean, I don't know that that would be if the Pope would be okay with that. What does vicar mean? Yeah, there you, you go. know. I mean, I don't. You know it's like I think. You know. I think we should just. You know, we could have the Eastern patriarchs. You could have Rome. They combine, and then I think Protestants. We just need our own patriarch. We need like a Baptist patriarch. Yeah, we'll get Al Mohler out there. I think I would, I mean, honestly, I would have Alistair Roberts be our Protestant patriarch. You know? Yeah, Alistair's a great guy. And he'll yeah. be our representative. Yeah. And then when then we all reunify. Yeah. That, yeah. That could be the way forward. Who knows? Crazier things have happened, Brian. Yeah. You know, that's that's yeah, all yeah. I'm saying. And so I'm not saying that I that 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 you know, I don't expect a lot of people to agree with me on that or whatever. I'm I'm just saying these are it's more plausible to me than I think than I think, you know, uh it, 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 I think it's more plausible than a lot of people might think. I'll put it that way. Sure. Well, I think yeah. for it to happen though, Catholicism would have to essentially step back on some of their, like you were saying, some of their indefensible positions and some of their dogmatic conclusions. They'd have to find some way out of them. And I think that would open the gate enough, perhaps. You know, for and I think it will probably be a ground level. It won't be a top down thing. It'll be ground level as I think as progressivism, secularism spreads more, we're going to find more and more co belligerent, you know, kind of formations, which I think will create understanding, friendships. Um, but I do think, you know, the doctrinal differences are severe and none other than the papacy. I mean, that's, I mean, if you got rid of that, you probably would have an Eastern Orthodox Roman reunion tomorrow. I mean, if you just, if, if he just let go of that and, <laughs> I think that would happen. And, uh, but I think that that's not going to happen. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting, interesting times we live in. And, Very interesting. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But um, great. It's great that we can have kind of this discussions like this about it. And Absolutely. honestly, you know, I, I just appreciate you coming on and talking and sharing your story. Um, you know, we'll put some links to uh, some of your articles and some, some of the things that you've written, but uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing all this. And uh, thanks for being being on with us. We got to have you again sometime. Oh, thank you very much, Brian. I'm, I, it's been a real pleasure. So, and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you guys for listening in. If you enjoyed this interview, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave a good review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. You can also go to our website, that'llpreach.io. Make sure you share us with your friends. Keep the dialogue going. Appreciate you guys tuning in. And we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>